This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And when most people think of Butch Cassidy, they think of Paul Newman's characterization in the famous movie, a charming outlaw with an infectious spirit and savvy wit. But the real story of Butch Cassidy is all that and, well, so much more. It's a story of a criminal mastermind, a Western godfather of sorts, who brings organization to the world of unorganized crime. This is the story of how one of the most unlikely fits for criminality became one of the most well-known outlaws of the American West. Butch Cassidy, the last great outlaw of the American West, is born Robert Leroy Parker in Beaver, Utah, on Friday the 13th in April 1866, to a family of Mormon immigrants. He's the first of 13 children born to two of the earliest Mormon settlers, Maximilian and Ann Parker. In 1879, Maximilian buys a homestead in Circle Valley, and 13-year-old Robert Leroy, or Roy as he is called, is thought old enough to help support the family and is sent off to work at a nearby ranch. Here's Tom Hatch, author of The Last Outlaws. Bob Parker was the oldest of 13 kids, and so he became the surrogate father, and he would take care of the kids. Bob was like a big kid himself, and he was throughout his whole life. He was a very gregarious man who made friends wherever he went because of his personality. His mother homeschooled the kids, mostly on the Bible. She would hold services there. He absolutely adored his mother. Here's Michael Rudder, author of Wild Bunch of Women. His mother was very devout. The family was strict. There was a confirmed right and wrong. There were fundamental Christian values in the family. Gale force winds and droughts make life on the Parker homestead a struggle. Maximilian decides to homestead additional acreage in the valley, but rights to the new property are contested by another settler. By Mormon custom, the dispute is mediated by the local church bishop. The bishop awards the land to the other settler, who is thought more faithful to the church. Maximilian is furious. Young Roy is furious also. He feels the Mormon religion has been used to cheat his family out of their land. Roy sets out to support his family by hiring out again this time at Jim Marshall's ranch. During Roy's second season at Marshall's ranch, he meets a man who would forever alter the direction of his life, small-time cattle rustler Mike Cassidy. Here's Utah historian Ken Verdoya. Mike Cassidy. He's a well-known horseman, and he's great with a revolver and excellent shot and marksman. And Cassidy takes a liking to little Bobby Parker, teaches him how to really ride a horse, teaches him how to handle a revolver, how to become a good marksman. And more importantly, Mike Cassidy shows him how to cut corners. There's big cattle operations, and they'll never miss it if one or two or 10 of the herd gets cut away and goes to another place. And Robert Parker watched Mike Cassidy acquire cattle and horses in that fashion. In the summer of 1884, 
Roy Parker is 18 years old and full grown. Stands 5 foot 9 and weighs 165 pounds. He's described as friendly, good-natured, loyal, and generous. He also has an infectious grin and is a natural leader. A ranch cowboy says Roy can ride around a tree at full speed and put every bullet from his revolver into a three-inch circle. Mike Cassidy has taught the kid well. His wrestling soon becomes known to the local authorities, though, and he leaves for the gold-mining boomtown of Telluride, Colorado. Some claim the town got its name from a quick pronunciation of Telluride. For a young man seeking adventure, Roy has come to the right place. Rugged frontiersmen pack Telluride's famed saloons, gambling halls, and houses of ill repute. Here's historians of the Old West, Paul Hutton and Tom Hatch. Robert Parker goes to a world that couldn't be more different. This is the wild boomtown world of the mining camp. So a lot of gambling, a lot of drinking, a lot of prostitution, a lot of young men, heavily armed and fueled by alcohol. He went in there with a Mormon mind and within a week or two, I'm sure he'd been in every saloon there and he learned how to drink with the best of them and he gambled with the best of them and he didn't feel comfortable in Mormon country, but he felt comfortable in Telluride. Roy lands a grueling job running a pack train of mules, hauling gold and silver ore from the mines to the mills. He soon wearies of the drudgery. Going in the mines each and every day, Robert Parker looks at that as a sucker's bet. You're coming out bone weary, you could die down there, and what have you earned at the end of the day? But on the corner is the San Miguel Bank. Roy, with two of his new friends, a lapsed Mormon named Matt Warner, and Warner's brother-in-law, Tom McCarty, pulls his first major criminal job, the robbery of the San Miguel Valley Bank of Telluride on June 24th, 1889. Now, most attempts at robbing banks in the Old West fail miserably because of poor planning or no planning at all. Roy is undeterred by the odds against him, and for good reason. From the very beginning, he had a methodology. He wasn't just one of these wild riders like the movies make so famous. He was very methodical, he was very careful, and he was very intelligent. Parker knew it's not just about where the money is, but knowing when it will be at its peak. When will the cash arrive? Who handles the cash? How many people are in the building at the time when the cash is at its peak? And more importantly than that, how will I make my escape? And when we come back, more on the life of Butch Cassidy, his story, here on Our American Stories. Get more at OurAmericanStories.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter.
Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Butch Cassidy. Roy Parker's accomplice, Tom McCarty, is an old hand at bank robbery, and he impresses upon Roy the importance of not only planning each step of the robbery, but also each step of the getaway. Several weeks before robbery, Roy will train and harden horses to be used in the getaway. Blooded animals are selected, grain-fed, and exercised rigorously. When the first relay is reached, Rory switches to thoroughbreds, able to maintain a swift pace over a long distance. If necessary, a second and a third relay of horses is used. This masterstroke will become Roy Parker's signature technique. The robbery of the bank at Telluride goes exactly as planned, and Roy and the others gallop out of town. Here's Ken Verdoya and True West Magazine contributor Tom Ross. And this is the genius of Robert Parker. He had planned the escape even better than he had planned the holdup. This is the first of his great escapades where they wind up with big money. I mean, you walk away from a bank with $20,000, and you're looking at what a cowboy might take him five or ten years to make if he saved every penny. This is a serious crime. It's one thing to take a few cows or take a couple horses, but this is big-time robbery. There's no going back. There's no going back. Roy Parker knows his deed will break the heart of his pious mother and decides to deflect shame from his family. He drops a family name and begins using the surname Cassidy in honor of his mentor. He will later also add the nickname Butch and become known to history as Butch Cassidy. The steep canyons and unforgiving terrain that make up the 1,500-mile-long stretch of wilderness that runs from New Mexico to Montana is known as the Outlaw Trail. The series of hideouts on the trail are notorious, with the names Robber's Roost, Brown's Hole, and Hole in the Wall. One of the benefits of being a Western outlaw is space. The American West is vast. It's cut by canyons, mountain ranges, river trails, a lot of places. There's only one way in, and so it's easy to guard. It's easy to see who's coming. And so these become natural fortifications for the outlaw bands to hide in. And if you're a lawman, and especially if you're just a civilian posse, you're not going in there. It's suicide. In 1890, Butch moves up the outlaw trail to the Wyoming hideout, hole in the wall. In April 1892, a couple of lawmen arrest Butch for being in possession of three stolen horses. Now, Butch claims he purchased the horses fair and square, and that seems to have been the case. However, the man he had purchased them from had stolen the horses. In July 1894, he is sentenced to two years in the Wyoming State Penitentiary. After serving 18 months, Butch applies for a pardon. William Richards, the governor of Wyoming, asks Cassidy, 
Will you give me your word that you're quit rustling? Butcher replies, can't do that, Governor, because if I gave you my word, I'd only have to break it. I'm in too deep now to quit the game, but I'll promise you one thing. If you give me a pardon, I'll keep out of Wyoming. Well, Cassidy's frankness wins over Governor Richards. The governor signs the pardon, and in January 1896, Butch Cassidy walks out of the penitentiary a free man. If Butch Cassidy was a minor outlaw before he went to prison, upon his release, he's determined to make a name for himself. Butch begins to gather together a group of outlaws who will become known as the Wild Bunch. Here's Cassidy biographer, W.C. Jameson. Cassidy referred to the group not as the Wild Bunch, but as the Train Robbers Syndicate. Now, this suggested a level of, of organization and perhaps a, a certain level of sophistication among this outlaw that cuts above the average outlaw of the day. Among this band of strong personalities, Butch is the clear leader. There was no job that he couldn't do. I think the others in the gang recognized his confidence, recognized his leadership, and thought that with this guy, we're going to be able to do some cool things. Butch handpicks each member of the gang and expects the best from those who ride with him. The core members include William Elsie Lay, Harvey Kit Curry Logan, Ben the Tall Texan Kilpatrick, Will News Carver, and lastly, the 21-year-old introvert, Harry Longabaugh, the man known to history as the Sundance Kid. Sundance was born Harry Longabaugh, about 30 miles north of Philadelphia, and he grew up basically on the canals. He would work probably 20 hours a day sometimes, and he would walk 25 miles each day. But Harry had dreams. He paid one whole dollar for a library card, which was quite a bit of money at that time to a poor boy. And he read these pulp novels about Jesse James and Buffalo Bill. This is where dreams of the West came into his head. I think it's difficult to understand today the lure of adventure that existed in the late 19th century, especially for a young boy like Harry growing up in Pennsylvania. The West offered everything that the society of the East seemed to work against. And a lot of young men went West in search of adventure. The 20-year-old Longbaugh earns his nickname, the Sundance Kid, after having served a year in the Sundance Wyoming jail for horse theft. In 1892, Sundance Kid and two accomplices rob a great northern railroad train at Malta, Montana. The accomplices are eventually captured, tried, and convicted. But the Sundance Kid makes good his escape and is introduced to Butch Cassidy on the outlaw trail. Butch saw in Sundance someone he could trust, number one. And number two, someone he could bounce his ideas off of, and they would go nowhere else. Butch Cassidy's first robbery following his release from the Wyoming State Penitentiary occurs in August 1896 at Mount Pelier, Idaho. As usual, 
Butch's caper is conducted with impeccable execution, a breathtaking escape, and not a single dead body. They get away with more than $7,000, something like a quarter million in today's money. Butch understood one simple premise. He didn't have to kill people. Some would go into a robbery and kill just to silence voices. Butch said, if my getaway is clean enough, I don't have to silence voices. Butch Cassidy's next heist is a daring daylight robbery at Castle Gate, Utah in April 1897. The Denver and Rio Grande train arrives at Castle Gate with the Pleasant Valley Coal Company's entire payroll aboard. Sign for me here. A crowd of miners barely notice two horsemen riding up to the general store. The horsemen are Butch Cassidy and L.Z. Lay. When the paymaster brings the payroll from the train, Butch jumps in his path. Beg your pardon, mister. Puts a gun in his ribs and takes the satchel. Before the astonished crowd can react, Butch is back in the saddle and galloping out of town. This is not just some drunken punks pulling shenanigans. This is the kind of stuff that puts him on the map. We've been robbed! A station agent tries to telegraph Price, Utah, the direction the outlaws seem to be headed. But Cassidy and Lay have cut the wires. Cassidy and Lay then escape by a circuitous route with fresh relays of horses and eventually reach Brown's Hole some $8,000 richer, more than a quarter of a million today. And when we come back, more on the life of Butch Cassidy. And to learn and hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org and subscribe to our newsletter. Give us your email address and you'll get the five best stories that we have each week directly into your inbox. This is Lee Habib. Again, this is Our American Stories. More on the life of Butch Cassidy after these commercial messages. This is Our American Stories, and we last left off with Butch and his boys returning to their hideout on the infamous Outlaw Trail. Let's return to the story and find out more about this Old West den of thieves. Along the Outlaw Trail, you have people that become the backbone of the Wild Bunch. They're the ones who provide the horses. They're the ones that offer a meal when they're on the run. These are the people that many times are able to keep their farms or their ranches because of a few $20 gold pieces that are dropped behind by Butch and Sundance as they make their way. By 1898, news of the charismatic Cassidy and his wild bunch begin to make headlines from San Francisco to New York. But along with their success, as America approaches the 20th century, 
the once wild and free West is being transformed. 30 years of unprecedented expansion of fast transportation and communication systems have connected the settled and civilized East with the once wild and woolly American West. Powerful railroad executives, mining barons, and cattle kings are tired of being robbed by Western outlaws and turn to a powerful ally to impose their own brand of law and order, the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. Here's historians of the American West, Marshall Trimble and Andrew Nelson. They were a private detective agency, therefore they weren't bound by the laws of regular lawmen. Bribery, deceit, nothing is off the table for the Pinkertons. And they are just as, if not more, sophisticated than Butch Cassidy. They also have assembled a crew of diverse talents. Founded 50 years earlier by Scottish immigrant Alan Pinkerton, the agency is America's first private detective outfit for hire. Pinkerton's logo, a simple, unblinking eye, underlined by the words, we never sleep, adds a new term to the American lexicon, private eye. Alan Pinkerton pioneers the use of undercover agents and webs of informants. During the Civil War, he's even recruited by Abraham Lincoln to run spy operations for the Union Army. The Pinkertons have over 2,000 full-time agents and 30,000 paid informants and part-time regulars. Their standing force is larger than the standing force of the United States Army at its time. And they get called out to bring justice to the American West. The Pinkertons embodied the modern age. They brought everything together, memoranda, files, regional offices, photography, everything. Butchin's Wild Bunch are now wanted dead or alive. But as usual, Butch has planned ahead, keeping an attorney on retainer to protect him and his men. Douglas Preston is Butch Cassidy's lawyer. Whenever any of the Wild Bunch gets in trouble, it is Preston who defends them, usually with success. Preston later becomes a state legislator and then the Attorney General of Wyoming. Preston says that once upon a time, during a saloon brawl, Cassidy saved his life, and in gratitude, he promised to defend Butch whenever the need should arise. Now, after the Civil War, outlaws begin targeting trains, starting with the Reno brothers in 1866, and followed by others such as Jesse James and Sam Bass. They make quick work of railroad express cars packed with money and lumbering through remote locations far from local posses. Most train robberies were successful. Everybody knew that. Banks got a little more difficult, but trains were fairly easy to rob because they hadn't put armed messengers on them. They hadn't taken any precautions whatsoever with security. Butch and his train robber syndicate pulled the first train robbery in the desolate countryside of Wilcox, Wyoming in June 1899. The flyer is coming down the tracks. They're about ready to cross a wood trestle bridge. 
and we see a couple guys with a lantern shaking it back and forth to stop the train. Usually it meant a washed out track or damaged track ahead and the train should stop. Any engineer's right mind goes, we gotta lock up the brakes. The train stops before the trestle. The people on the train are nervous. We don't stop trains in the middle of the desert, but it just happened. The engineers thought that the bridge might have been washed out. Little did he know that these were robbers up on the tracks. They pull apart passenger cars, separate them from the engine and the car which carries the safe. Butch and the boys then surround the express car and shout to the messenger inside to open the door. Ernest Woodcock replies, come in and get me. Is it a dud? Butch answers by lobbing a stick of dynamite under the car. Got a dud. The blast blows out one side of the car. Woodcock has thrown the entire length of the car and knocked groggy. Harvey Logan jumps into the car and puts a revolver to Woodcock's head. Butch yells at Logan, let him alone. A man with his nerve deserves not to be shot. The gang then blows the safe apart with still more dynamite. Too much, in fact. Bonds and money are blown everywhere, and the outlaws have to scurry about to gather together some $30,000 in loot. All right, boys. We gotta go. That's around one million in today's money. It's the most spectacular robbery the West has ever seen. A few hours later, a special train is dispatched to the scene from Cheyenne, 120 miles away. The train carries railroad detectives, Pinkerton detectives, and a posse with horses. The lawmen rendezvous at Wilcox and then set out upon the trail of the Wild Bunch. Here's historian David Eisenbach. If they could nail Butch Cassidy, no matter how much money they and resources they devoted to this, the fame of the agency would become so great that it would pay off in the long run with other jobs that they would get. And they would literally go to the ends of the earth to do it. The Pinkertons put two of their best operatives, Charlie Seringo and W.O. Sales, on the assignment. These pros don't follow hoofprints in the dirt. Instead, they begin methodically tracking serial numbers on the banknotes stolen at Wilcox. Soon, the stolen money begins to surface in towns across the region. Unintentionally, the Wild Bunch members are illuminating their own trail. Because of the dynamite blowing it up, a whole bunch of the bills had cuts on the bottom. And so they knew that if they got one of the bills that had a cut in a certain way, it was from this robbery. All of this stuff worked against these antiquated horse-powered cowboys who were trying to steal this money. You know, they're up against serial numbers. No contest. One by one, the hideouts for the Wild Bunch have been penetrated. Moreover, by 1900, several members of the Wild Bunch have been killed or captured. Thanks to a tip, Butch nearly escapes capture by a Pinkerton detective and decide it's time to call it quits. 
it's like a noose getting tighter and tighter. And Butch is smart enough to understand this. He's smart enough to see that now all of the Pinkerton's resources are focused on the Wild Bunch and they're never going to give up. They won't stop. And when we come back, the final segment in this remarkable story, Butch Cassidy's story, here on Our American Stories. Continue with our American stories with the Pinkerton National Detective Agency dedicating all of its resources towards the capture of outlaw Butch Cassidy. Butch is forced to get even more creative. Let's return to the story. Working with his lawyer, Douglas Preston, Butch agrees to meet with Union Pacific representatives to negotiate a truce. The railroad will drop charges against him in exchange for him working as a railroad express card. To avoid any chance of treachery, Butch asks that Preston bring the railroad officials to the remote Lost Soldier Stage Station at the base of Green Mountain in Wyoming. The railroad contingent, who are ready to make a deal, well, that contingent is delayed en route by a storm, and when the hour of the rendezvous comes and goes without Preston, and without the Union Pacific representatives showing up, Butch is left alone and thinking he's been stood up, or worse, set up. In what would have been a historic meeting, Butch becomes impatient and leaves behind an angry note. Damn you, Preston, you double-crossed me. I waited all day, but you didn't show up. Tell the UP to go to hell, and you can go with them. As a result of what Butch believes to be the Union Pacific's treachery, he decides to strike against the railroad as soon as possible. On a warm evening in August 1900, the boys stop the Union Pacific at Tipton, Wyoming. Butch finds that the messenger inside the express car is none other than the clerk from the previous Wilcox robbery, Ernest Woodcock. Again, the brave messenger refuses to open the door. Seeing the Wild Bunch's dynamite, though, the conductor convinces Woodcock to comply this time. The outlaws then dynamite the safe and take an estimated 55000 Butch now thinks he should leave the once wide-open American West and try his luck in South America. Here's historian Gerald Copen. Butch wants to go to a place that's more like the Western United States was, say, 20 years before, where you don't have the Pinkertons to worry about and where law enforcement isn't quite as effective. Before he leaves, Butch, Sundance, and three of the core members of the Wild Bunch rendezvous in the roaring cattle boom town of Fort Worth, Texas, 
to live it up in hell's half acre, the red light district. Decked out like the businessmen they are robbing, the five men commemorate their adventure by posing for a group photograph. Ironically, for the master planner, it will be this relatively new technological innovation that will result in the biggest blunder of an otherwise brilliant criminal career. The photographer put this photograph in his window as advertisement for his skill. Unfortunately, a local lawman goes by, recognizes one of the boys in the photo, and soon that photo is circulated throughout the Pinkerton Detective Agency and throughout the West. They made flyers with pictures of Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, all the Wild Bunch. They plastered those pictures up everywhere, and they had them in the hands of all their operatives. Now, indeed, you couldn't escape the eye that never slept, because it really had you. Butch splits up the gang, and by February 1901, Cassidy, Sundance, and his mysterious girlfriend, the absolute knockout at a place, spend several weeks living the high life in the modern metropolis of New York City. From there, they leave on a steamship for Argentina. It seemed like they had a chance to start over, to reinvent themselves. The old days are over. Butch and Sundance get out just in time. Two years after Butch and Sundance leave for Argentina, Edwin Porter's The Great Train Robbery, one of the first motion pictures, is captivating New York audiences in 1903. By 1903, the story of the Wild West, the story of Butch and Sundance, has already become fodder for mass entertainment. So famous is the Wild Bunch that Buffalo Bill Cody, in his Wild West show, which is playing not only all across America, but to the crown heads of Europe, features one of their train robberies. I mean, I think to the American public, Butch and Sundance are gone. It's over. That's why they're making movies. It's a show. It's a show now. In the winter of 1903, Pinkerton informants in Pennsylvania intercept a letter Sundance sends to his family. In South America, Butch Cassidy may have forgotten about the Pinkertons, but the Pinkertons certainly had not forgotten about Butch Cassidy. You'll have to enter this, please, sir. Yes, sir. They were still employing every tool and every method at their disposal to bring him to justice. That included intercepting mail. I need to send a telegram to Argentina. Butch Cassidy has been cited. On the run from Argentine authorities in Anita Cash, Butch and Sundance return to what they know best. Along with Etta Place, they take 10,000 from the National Bank in Central Argentina and 20,000 from a bank in Rio Gallegos. In 1907, Etta Place returns to the United States for medical treatment and Butch and Sundance rob a mule train with a payroll for the Alpoca mine in Southern Bolivia. Within hours of the heist, the telegraph wires begin humming. Even in the wilds of South America, the civilizing forces of westward expansion have caught up with Butch and Sundance. 
Every town in the area is supplied with descriptions of what they call banditos yaqui. Butch makes the mistake of taking not only the gold, but also a big silver gray mule. Sometime later, Butch and Sundance ride into the village of San Vicente, where a hotel owner recognizes the mule and grows suspicious. While his wife prepares a meal for Butch and Sundance, he rides to alert a nearby troop of Bolivian cavalry. He led three people down to this home. One of the soldiers went on to the patio, drew his weapon. Butch saw his silhouette through the window and pulled out his six gun and shot the guy dead. First person, the only person that Butch ever killed. Meanwhile, the word goes out and other residents of the town, heavily armed, now come to surround the house. They're surrounded. They're not going anywhere. There's no way they're getting out of there. The shooting becomes general. Butch and Sundance had put their Winchesters in extra ammunition across the patio. And now Sundance makes a dash for them. He miraculously gets to the rifles and ammo unscathed. But on his return dash, is hit by several rounds and drops to the ground. Butch runs out and drags him back to cover. The two continue fighting, but Sundance is fading fast and dies. Butch has one round left. With that last bullet, he shoots himself. Butch Cassidy, the one-time Mormon boy named Robert Leroy Parker, is dead at 42 years old. The two are laid to rest in unmarked Bolivian graves. But there are some who believe these famous outlaws had not yet met their end. Almost immediately, stories began that they hadn't been killed in Bolivia. We don't want the outlaws to die. We certainly don't want them to die the way Butch and Sundance died. As wild as they were, as bad as they were, still represented something that Americans embrace, that wild freedom. And when they're gone, the Wild West is gone. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler, and thanks to Roger McGrath. He's the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. And we so appreciate his voice and are grateful for his storytelling. And we did this story because on this day in history, in 1908, Butch Cassidy was born. And all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. A fine place to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you and your family. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu and sign up for their free and their terrific online courses. And while you're at it, remember, you can get our free newsletter at ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up and we'll send you our five best stories each week. And most important, tell your friends, tell family members, folks at your church, at your workplace about our show. We're trying to tell the story of America to America about our past and our present because in the end, we believe that our, knowing our past, well, it, it informs our future. 
This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the story of Butch Cassidy, the rest of the story here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories, and we love telling you stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to your stories. You're the hour in Our American Stories. Send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll produce them, and we'll put them right back up on the airwaves. We also love bringing you stories from great writers from across this nation. We read a piece in the Wall Street Journal recently entitled, The Yoke That Shaded George Washington, and it was by Juan No Usadi, and we asked her to perform it for us. Here she is with a story of a tree, a tree not far from where I grew up, and the town is Basking Ridge, New Jersey. Last summer, my town bid farewell to its eldest resident, departing this world at the age of 600, or 550, or 500. No one really knew for sure. The great white oak tree, almost 10 stories tall and 130 feet wide, standing beside the Presbyterian Church in the center of town, was still one of the oldest, if not the oldest of its kind in North America. Even before the official announcement that the ailing tree could not be saved, visitors had been arriving in steady streams to gaze at the bearing branches, trimmed and truncated to avoid breaking off, the remains of a once massive canopy shading the tombstones of 35 Revolutionary War veterans. It's strange that a tree could elicit feelings normally reserved for a loved one. But that's exactly how many in our town thought of the great oak, a beloved figure around which Baskinridge, a small, picturesque town 40 miles west of New York City, grew from a log cabin built 300 years ago. In 1717, the giant oak, already 200, maybe even 300 years old, must have made quite an impression on a small group of Scottish Presbyterian colonists looking for a place to settle. Felling the tree with its prized, hard, close-grained wood would have provided much-needed resources, materials for constructing houses and barns, firewood for cooking and heating, and land for farming and raising livestock. Instead, the settlers let it prosper. After paying $50 to the Lanny Lenape Indians for the 3,000-acre tract on which the oak stood, the colonists constructed a church, a small log cabin beside its shade. As more immigrants, Scots, 
Irish, and English followed. The oak came to bear witness to the history of a town. In 1740, the famous English evangelist George Whitfield spoke to a gathering of more than three thousand people beneath the tree, spreading the gospel of the Great Awakening. A few decades later, George Washington and his men, en route to battle, would rest under the same shade. The oak was there for the dawn of a new nation. Beneath the gnarly bark, the historic tree's longevity warped one sense of a lifetime, reminding us that we're all passers-by in this land. Yet inside our small town, a sense of belonging grows with time. Eleven years ago, when my family moved to Baskin Ridge, I was often greeted with, "You're from Texas." The question was reminiscent of one I had heard from thirty years earlier. You're from Vietnam, but just as my refugee family would eventually find a foothold in a new country, my young, fully American family would discover our place in a new town by sharing in its aspirations and contributing to its successes. The prosperity of our town and nation is a testament that others have traveled similar paths of assimilation. As each wave of immigrants builds on the work of those who came before and adds its own mark, the community invariably evolves. What endures are America's core values: humility, hard work, and tolerance. The result is a land that grows materially wealthier and culturally more diverse. Over the years, our town had doted on the aging tree, nursing it back to health after war. Storms, droughts, diseases, among other traumas, through it all, the oak remains steadfast, seemingly immortal. Still, life is precarious, particularly for a six hundred year old. Emerging from the winter in two thousand fifteen, the oak sprouted leaves only in the lower branches, leaving a gaping hole at the top of its crown. Experts sought to reverse the decline as the town held its breath. But it became apparent that the tree couldn't be saved. In time, the sense of loss in Baskin Ridge turned toward talk of renewal. In the spring of 2017, a 25-foot baby oak, which had grown from the gray oak's own acorns, was transplanted on the church's grounds. Some time after, the town finally cut down the great patriarch, leaving a palpable void at the heart of a town. And that of his residence. Today, people still visit the site where the oak once stood. Its remaining six-foot-wide stump, along with its nearby young progeny, serve as a reminder that all valued institutions, from a town symbol thought to have defied age to a nation and community founded and enriched by immigrants, require thoughtful cultivation and renewal from citizens. In another six hundred years, perhaps a new oak will still stand guard, though in a landscape undoubtedly much different. But the essence of the community will thrive if its citizens continue to cultivate deep-rooted values. And thank you so much to Juan No Usadi, and what a story from Vietnam to Texas to Basking Ridge, New Jersey, and what a story about a tree. The early founders of that town could have used it for all kinds of good purposes. But they kept it there as a showpiece of sort. 
God show peace in front of the first church constructed in Basking Ridge. Juan no Usadi's story, a tree story, an oak tree story, Baskin Ridge's story in New Jersey, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we love having authors on the show. And today we have Bruce Feiler, who writes the This Life column for the Sunday New York Times. He's also the author of six consecutive New York Times bestsellers. He's known for writing about what he's experienced in his new book, The First Love Story, Adam, Eve, and Us, is no exception. Yeah, I'm the look. I'm the I'm the father of a soon to be a 13 year old identical girl. Uh, I have a working wife, and that means I spend a tremendous amount of time in my life talking about what we all talk about, which is the changing roles of men and women. And like everybody else, I'm sort of trying to figure out uh, the rules of relationships. But so much of our contemporary dialogue is about you know technology and what's happening at the moment. But I spent a lot of time in the ancient world, right? I've written, you know, four books about the ancient world, Walking the Bible and Abraham. And I, I kept thinking, is there nothing from the past uh, that can't be uh, preserved as we talk about this today? Are we throwing out all the old rules? So my wife was on a business trip to Rome, and we decided to bring the girls along. I think at the time, they must have been about eight. And I'm the one who had the genius idea that, Let's take them on day one, jet-lagged, exhausted, to the Vatican, right? See some art, get some culture. It did not go very well. Like, oh, our feet hurt, and why are there carpets on the wall, and why are all these naked statues here? So I'm like, come on, girls, we're going to go to the Sistine Chapel. So I push them, take them into the middle of the Sistine Chapel. I'm like, look up, I'm going to blow your mind. And they look up, and one of my daughters looks at that image that you mentioned. And by the way, that's an iconic image for a ton of reasons, not least of which no one had really shown God in his full body, the beard, all of that was actually new from uh, Michelangelo. And she looks up and she says, well, why are there only men in that picture? I was like, oh my word, uh, what am I in for? And then my other daughter looks up and says, well, wait a minute, is that, who is that under God's arm? Is that Eve? And I have to say, my mother is an art teacher, but I had never really noticed that about that figure before. And that's when I realized, oh, my gosh, one story has been at the center of men and women and relationships for 3,000 years, right? And for some, you know, it may be fact, for some, it may be science, whatever it is, this story has been there. And what if I look at this story and go back sort of on this great scavenger hunt across time, looking at the story of Adam and Eve, and maybe it can tell us, as crazy as it seems, something about relationships today. And you took your time on this book, as you always do, Bruce, and we love that. And it sounds like you had a heck of a time telling the story. You did a lot of traveling and a lot of geographic travel, but also time travel. Talk about both of those things. 
Well, I mentioned earlier that I had done Walking the Bible, and, and, and Walking the Bible, and I did it twice, once for the book and once for the PBS series. Walking the Bible was sort of a journey across um, a space, if you will, but in the same time period. As you know, I retraced the, the five books until I climbed Mount Ararat in, uh, in Western, uh, excuse me, in Eastern Turkey, looking for Noah's Ark. I crossed the Red Sea. Um, I climbed uh, Mount Sinai. I tasted manna. And, but all of that was going to places in the ancient world, reading the stories and seeing what they could tell us today. It was pretty clear that there were not that many places to go <laughs> regarding Adam and Eve uh, in the ancient world. I've actually been to the Garden of Eden in Iraq, um, and that story is recounted in the first love story. Um, so, but what really allowed me to sort of, because I'm, I'm really an adventure person. I'm an, I'm an experientialist, I like to say, because I like to go places. And so what really um, unlocked it was realizing that this story, every significant artistic and creative figure in history, and every generation has grappled with this story. So when I realized I could go to Jerusalem, I could go to the Sistine Chapel, I could go to the Galapagos, where even Darwin confronted uh, this story. I could go in the footsteps of Milton in London with Paradise Lost. I could go to Hollywood, where Mae West made this incredible, iconic rendition of Adam and Eve on radio that was totally scandalous in the 1920s. And so I basically, this was a journey, not just across space, but also across time, looking at how this story has been reimagined by every generation. And by looking at the story, we can really understand the history of love and that legacy that we all carry today. Let's talk about that original story in the Old Testament, that Adam and Eve story, and how, how you believe that story got altered by man over time, by men over time. So the first thing to say about the story of Adam and Eve is that it's not one story. It's actually two stories. And the second story in some ways has the iconic uh, incidents that we think about with Adam and Eve. We have that's the creation of, of Eve from the rib of Adam, although it's not really the rib. It's actually the side. Um, it, that's got the scene with the apple, but it's not really an apple. It's just called the fruit. That's got the, the scene where they're kicked out of Eden, but they're not really kicked out because God still extends his love, Cain and Abel, and onward. And that's the story that most of us think about. But there's actually an earlier story in Genesis 1 where God creates man and woman in a, in a sort of a non-gendered, uh, unified creation and then divides them in two. And the reason that's important is in the first story, they begin with total equality. Uh, what's true for the man is also true for the woman. That's been lost over time for a lot of reasons, but the primary reason is basically organized religion got a hold of the story. And by organized religion, I should say, I mean men got a hold of the story and kind of used the story as a way to dump on Eve. I, I think of this story as uh, uh, poor Adam and Eve. They are victims of the greatest character assassination the world has ever known. And basically, they, you know, sort of history basically me too Eve and sort of made her the scapegoat. And what happened over time is that first artists and then creative people, Michelangelo, uh, I mentioned John Milton, uh, Mary Shelley and Frankenstein, and then the modern, you know, women's movement kind of reclaimed Eve and kind of restored her to the role because kind of one of the, one of the kind of things that always fascinates me about, about contemporary religion is, is that it was controlled by men and they used it to, to, to basically subjugate women. But now, by every measure, women are more religious than men. And the only way that was going to happen was for women to basically reclaim the story and see themselves in the story, and that began with Adam and Eve. 
So basically, I, I see this as the original story, which has this equality, centuries of subjugation of women um, uh, at the hands of organized religion, and then a slow, centuries-long reclaiming of the story so that Adam and Eve can stand as equals today, and as I sort of alluded to earlier, kind of in critical role models for how we might relate to each other at this time, this kind of you know, challenging time, and how men and women relate to each other. Now, a lot of folks don't think the Adam and Eve story started too well. You've already talked about the two stories even more. But a lot of people don't think it ended well. Talk about the ending, because in the end, I think this is what you focus on. It's a magnificent story, isn't it? Oh, it's amazing. I, I think that one of the you know, one of the things I see in the story, um, I, I refer to it as constancy. I, I see Adam and Eve starting together. I mentioned earlier that they were created together. Then they separate, right? Eve is not happy. She's whether you know she's bored, she's frustrated, whatever it might be. She goes off into uh, she goes off into the garden and she tastes of the fruit. And at that moment, she can separate if she wants, right? Milton has a great scene in uh, in Paradise Lost where Eve, upon eating the fruit, says, uh, "Oh my gosh, I have all the power. This would be an incredible win for women, the female sex, if I keep this power to myself." And then she says, oh, but I love Adam so much. I miss him. I can't live without him. So she goes back. I see that as a separation and then a returning, okay? And then um, what does Adam do? He has this choice. Should he eat or should he not eat? He knows pretty well. He knows very well that he's not supposed to do this, but he's like, he chooses love, right? He chooses Eve over God, so to speak. He eats too, another coming together. And then they're kicked out of Eden, Okay, at this moment, they could separate. The story could like die right there, but they stick together. They have a, they have a child. Then they have a second child. So they have Cain and Abel. So, you know, we, we should remember they're not just the first lovers and the first couple and the first love story, as the title of my book suggests, but they're also the first parents. Um, that doesn't go very well, right? One of their children kills the other. They could be separated. And in fact, there is a period of separation. Uh, the text is very clear on this, but they come back together, they reconcile, and they have a third son, Seth, and it's that Seth that goes on to populate the human line and sort of get the biblical story going. That is a story of separation coming back together, separation coming back together, that I think that they deserve credit for and is an incredible inspiration because as anybody, anybody who's been in a relationship longer than a weekend knows it doesn't always go well. And this act of reconciliation is something I think we can all learn from today. And when we come back, more with Bruce Feiler, his terrific book, one of the great or the greatest love story ever told, the first love story, Adam, Eve, and us, here on Our American Stories.
And we return with Bruce Feiler and his new book, The First Love Story, Adam, Eve, and Us. And Bruce, I want to quote from the book. The story of Adam and Eve has a similar oscillating quality, especially in the chords of the birth of their third child. Their lives contain a particular quality of love that's rarely sung out loud, duration. Students of infatuation, that period of intense awareness and obsessive immersion that often characterizes the initial phase of relationship, say it lasts a matter of months. And you go on to then talk about this difference between the infatuation phase and, of course, constancy. You cite Dorothy Tenov. Who is she and why did you look at her work along with Helen Fisher? Well, I think that, you know, Dorothy Tenov back in the 1970s was the first person to write about that period of titillation and how kind of infatuation and how it's a it's a short-term thing and then it passes in as Alan Fisher has said into a kind of a, a kind of a long-term uh give and take i mean Alan, uh Helen Fisher said something quite interesting to me she's an anthropologist who sort of put people in brain scan machines to to look at, at who've been in long-term relationships and 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 she talked about 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 how the people who were in successful relationships learned to have Give and take. Learn that they are in a a shared story, um, if you will. And I think that what matters here about this. So my book is called The First Love Story, right? And I think that um, I, I feel in a profound way that Adam and Eve introduced the idea of love into the Western world. It doesn't begin in you know France, as we were told, or the Middle Ages, or even in Greece, as some people say. It begins in the Hebrew Bible. And yet the Bible does not get credit for this, and people don't think of this as a love story. I think the reason that we don't is not because we misidentify the story, but because we misidentify what love is, right? So the modern kind of love story, the Hollywood love story, the love song, uh, the pop song that's three-minute love story is usually about that period of the tingles, right? It's about that period of self-discovery and infatuation when the chemicals are going crazy and you think everything is perfect before you, you realize that love is something different, right? So love is a long-term story. And you mentioned the word oscillation when you were reading that passage. So I, you know, this may take me a second to unfold, but a couple of years ago, I met some psychologists at Emory who had done research into how children understand themselves. And basically what they found is that children who understand uh, their family history, which is to say they give kids a, a 21 question survey of do you know where your grandparents were born? Do you know a relative who had cancer? Do you have, do you know what happened when your parents met and what was happening around the time of your birth? And the children who answered these questions better had a higher degree of, of self-confidence and self-esteem and a belief that they could control the world around them. And when I asked uh, the psychologists who did this study, one of them is Marshall Duke, I asked Marshall why this would be the case he said that there are three types of family narratives. There's what they call an ascending narrative. You know, we started out with nothing, we worked hard, we have a lot. There's a descending narrative. We had a lot, then there was a war or a recession or a storm, and we lost it all. Or there's what they call an oscillating narrative with ups and downs, with swings, with natural rhythms of success and failure. Your grandfather came here. He worked very hard. Um, he, his, uh, but then his house burned down. His daughter was the first woman in the family to go to college. Then she got breast cancer. 
So children who understand that their that their the history, their lives, their families have an oscillating narrative, understand that when they hit bumps in the road, that they can get through them. I wrote about this in, in the New York Times in a piece called "The Stories That Bind Us," and it, you know I've written 15 books and you know, hundreds of newspaper and magazine articles. It's the thing that most went viral um, in my entire writing career as people found themselves in this story. And that's why I use that word oscillating in the conjunction with Adam and Eve, because the story is oscillating. It's not an ascending narrative of they meet and it's all so wonderful and they go, you know, and there were some, you know, kooky little things and then they got to the altar and lived happily ever after. That's not what happened to Adam and Eve and that's not what happens to any good relationship. Indeed, I want to quote further, quote, Adam and Eve asserted by their very actions that love is not just union, it is reunion. It includes by its very endurance some element of choice, and it encompasses by its very survival the necessity of progress. There is no love without time, and there is no love without respect for the other. And to have that, you must see the other not as higher or as lower. You must see the other as your equal. That's beautiful words, and that's straight out of the first real biblical story of love. And yet, and yet we don't see it that way. And, and you, you brought up uh, the Cain and Abel moment, which I think is an equally powerful thing. Right? This is a deeply troubling, disturbing, sad, grief-stricken moment, right? One of their children has murdered the other child. And I, I you know, suggest if, you, you know, if, we, if we ask for a show of hands of anyone listening to this conversation of what losing a child does to a relationship, most people would say that it destroys the relationship. And what's fascinating is that that turns out not to be true. Uh, I, I spoke to a scholar who looked at 25,000 families who had uh, lost children in the Northwest, including a lot who'd lost them in the Mount St. Helens volcano. And uh, it, it turned out that only a handful of them broke up. And when I asked her why, she said, because each party is grief-stricken after the loss of a child, and they're tending themselves, and they're so busy tending themselves that they often are not good at tending the other person. But after a while, they look across the table, and they realize the only person who can understand what they're going through is sitting right across from them. And she used this beautiful language. She said that basically what they do is they write a new chapter in their lives. And that's really what I learned from all this time with Adam and Eve, which is that love is a story we tell with another person. It's co-creation through co-narration. I think of the scene in Hamilton uh, when, let's remember what happened, when the second act of Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton has had an affair on Eliza, and they're estranged, and then their son, Philip, is killed in a duel. And the most beautiful song, to my ear, in the entire musical is, is what happens after. It's called It's Quiet Uptown. The two of them, they are estranged, they come together, they start taking long walks. They go into the garden. <laughs> they move uptown. And they realize in the end that they're the only ones who can understand. And there's this beautiful um, thing at the end of that song where the cast sings, you know, forgiveness. Can you imagine? I mean, losing a child is unimaginable. And the only thing that is a big enough response is an act of imagination. And that's what I see Adam and Eve doing, and that's what I see just speaking to, as I said, any of us in a relationship. I'll be married 15 years uh, this summer, and my relationship, like everybody I know, requires this constant act of imagination of 
it's not just a commitment that you make, it's a stream of commitments and, you know, a healing of breaches. And that's a skill that any long-term relationship uh, demands. Indeed. In fact, uh, one of the great movies of the 80s was about, well, the opposite of what you just said. It was Ordinary People, if you remember, based on the book. And that couple broke apart because of the death of his son, um, which, again, that's the outlier. The movie, I think, made it seem as if maybe that was more the norm. Um, but it, it may have resonated for that individual and particular family. And when we come back, more with Bruce Filer, the first love story, Adam, Eve, and us, here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to Our American Network and sign up for our newsletter. It's just an email, folks. You send us the email, we'll send you our five best stories of the week in transcript form and a link to the podcast as well. This is Lee Habib. More with Bruce Filer after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue with our conversation with Bruce Filer, author of the first love story, Adam, Eve, and Us, and it's available on Amazon.com. Go there, pick it up. You won't put this book down. You take a walk through literary history, too, Bruce, and you mentioned Milton before, and I don't know how we can understand literary history without reading the Bible and knowing it, but one story caught my attention, and it was Mary Shelley who wrote Frankenstein, and it was, I guess, her rebuttal to Adam and Eve in a way? Well, first of all, um, am I the last person who knew that Frankenstein was an Adam and Eve story? But Frankenstein is an Adam and Eve story, right? So, you know, it's interesting. We know the origin story of that, right? You've got Byron, you've got Shelley, uh, who was having this relationship with um, Mary. She wasn't Shelley yet, but Mary Shelley, and they all end up... uh, you know, in, in, uh, by Lake Geneva, and it's a stormy night, they say, let's all tell ghost stories. And, uh, it was not the most successful parlor game, but it's out of that that Frankenstein came. And so what is the story of Frankenstein? You've got Dr. Frankenstein. So, um, he creates this new being. So Dr. Frankenstein in the Adam and Eve of it all is God. And the monster, if you will, is, if that's what we want to call him, is Adam. And then what happens is, is that the monster, you know, gets estranged from Dr. Frankenstein and is frustrated, and he goes running off into the Alps. And so what, he's in the Alps, and they need him to be able to communicate with Dr. Frankenstein. So he begin, he, he observes this couple in a house, and what is happening? The couple, um, the caretaker is reading to the patient, uh, Paradise Lost. 
So the monster overhears and learns to speak English by listening to Paradise Lost, which, by the way, may not be the best way you know, <laughs> to learn basic grammar, but it's a pretty good way to learn eloquent English, right? So, and then so the monster is listening to the creature, whatever you want to call him, is listening to this and realizing, oh, my gosh, I'm Adam. And so the monster goes traipsing back to Dr. Frankenstein and says, make me a woman. I'm Adam. I'm alone, right? That's the key thing in the entire story. One of the reasons the story resonates today is that when Adam is by himself, Adam looks up plaintively toward God and God says, it's not right for humans to be alone. So they're like, so Adam says, God says, I have to make you a companion. And that's where we get Eve from. So the monster says, make me an Eve. And Frankenstein says, well, no, I don't want to do that. Like, it's enough trouble with you already. And so then Frankenstein, the monster begins to sort of start attacking everyone that Dr. Frankenstein loves. And he then says, okay, fine, I'm going to create you this Eve. And then and, and the monster says, yeah, we'll go away. We'll go back basically you know, into, the, into the Garden of Eden. And it all goes horribly wrong. So it, it's fascinating. And I think what's interesting about that is this is exactly at the moment that science is beginning to take over, right? Soon we have Darwin. Soon we have sort of the beginning of the decline of the influence of the Bible. And yet this suggests that this story is bigger. Um, I mean, what's bigger than the Bible? It's almost hard to believe anything can be. And yet Adam and Eve transcends even the decline of religion, because it's such an iconic human story and basically part of our cultural DNA. Indeed. And by the way, isolation uh, is, a, is, a, is a plague on, on Americans today and loneliness. And, and I've read this in the Times and the Wall Street Journal. Actually, well, we know what a problem it is in the country. And in, in some aspect, you had said it before, you know, God, at least the God we know from the Bible, didn't want us to be alone. And this story is, is a big part of that, isn't it? Oh, my gosh. It's, the, to me, the great insight in the story, um, and, and that is really profound. We know from uh, you know, the last 20 years of positive psychology, from happiness research, that, that happiness is other people, right, and that relationships are central to our well-being. The biggest scourge, as you said, is loneliness, whether it's teen suicide, adult suicide, opioids. You know, technology isolating us. We know that, that, that loneliness has become a modern health uh, uh, epidemic. And uh, within that, we need relationships. You look at the story. There it is in Genesis 1 where God says it's not right for humans to be alone. God, the Bible gets there 3,000 years before modern social science. So if you think that science has basically rendered the Bible moot, you're missing the point. And frankly, if you're the kind of person who thinks the Bible has every answer, I think you're also missing the point. Here's where the Bible, where religion and science talking to each other can give us an even deeper insight into how we all live. Indeed, they're not mutually opposites, and the antagonism proposed between the two, I think, has always been a false construct. Let's talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer's quote. It's one of my favorites. He was writing a letter to his niece, and he wrote this, quote, It is not your love that sustains your marriage, but from now on the marriage that will sustain your love. Talk about that quote, because I, I, I thought of it when I was reading your book. Well, that's a, uh, a beautiful thought, and I, I, I think that... <laughs> You know, there was such, for so many years in religion, there was a, there was a <laughs> distinction between, uh, you know, beliefs and deeds. And I, I think what I hear in that that's related there is the act of doing, the act of sustaining the relationship is, is also an act of love. I quote in, in, in the book, as you know, that wonderful scene in, uh, in uh, Fiddler on the Roof, <laughs> right? So we've got Tevia and his wife 
who had had an arranged marriage, shall we not forget, and they want arranged marriage with the matchmaker, 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 make me a match of their daughters. But of course, then the daughters, you know, one by one, want a love match. And it's such a crisis for Tevia. And there's this moment where he goes to his wife and he says, you know, look at the kids, look at our daughters. They're like all talking about love and like, um, uh, what about that? Like, do you love me? And she kind of squawks back, do I love you? What are you talking about? You know, don't bother me. She's like, he's like, do you love me? And, and she says, I did your laundry. I, you know, I, I, ma- I made your clothes. I made your bed. I made your food. You know, if, if that's not love, what is? And I, I think that that's great, right? That, that, I was going to say they don't make movies about that, but of course they do make movies about that now because that is what that story is about, that love takes all different forms. And there is sometimes the act, an act of reconciliation which may not be uh, flowers and champagne, you know, an act of, of balance, an act of letting each other take the lead. I think that's also great in the Adam and Eve story, right? You know, he, she's created from his rib, but he's the one who clings to her, right? She initiates, he initiates the lovemaking that produces the children, but she gives them their name, and that's the source of power in the ancient world. So there's a wonderful back and forth. There's a wonderful constancy, as we were talking earlier. There's wonderful reconciliation and lots of simple, small wins and small gestures that have kept this relationship alive, basically, for 3,000 years. Indeed. Let's return to where we started at, at the Sistine Chapel. You had a conversation there with an art historian, and it was beautiful. You asked her what we can learn from Adam and Eve, and she said this, quote, that we're made for love, that's what the initial image shows. We're made out of love, and we're made for love. Talk about that. You know, our human, why do we have love? Why do we need love, right? Animals don't have love, um, almost all of them. Uh, but we have it. Why? Because it is valuable to keep people together, to raise families, to create culture, because the family is the backbone of our lives, um, because it's what holds our civilization together, because we might all spin out and do what's best for me, what's best for me, what's best for me. The scourge of individualism is the other side of the loneliness. We all think we can go it alone. And, but going alone is challenging. And I think that we have love because it binds people together. It's good for raising children. It's good for our society. It's hard. It's difficult. It's not all roses and champagne as we've been talking. But I think that what this story reminds us is that this is the first human story. All of the stories in the ancient world, they had a God, and a God created humans, or a God and a human. The, the Hebrew Bible, the book of Genesis, is the first book that has a man and a woman with a name with at the, at the origins of the human line. And the fact that there is a story associated with that, and the story itself has ups and downs, reminds us that we need love, that love is difficult, but that when it triumphs, it's good for everybody involved. Indeed, and there was free will in that garden, right? And there were Absolutely. choices and agency. Talk last about both of those things. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm, I'm working on a book now. Um, I've been interviewing hundreds of people about their life stories. 
uh, people who've had transitions and disruptions and reinventions. And I'm doing this thing I call the Life Story Project, where I'm gathering stories. And it's really about how we live a meaningful life. And there are what I call the ABCs of meaning. <laughs> the first is agency. And for sure, Adam and Eve have that, right? Eve goes up. She eats that fruit. Adam eats that fruit. They, they have consequence. They have those children. They come together and have the third child. There's a lot of agency. That's the A of the ABCs of meaning. The B is belonging. And this relationship is all about belonging, connection, love. And it's cause and something higher than yourself. And I think that that's also here in this story. Not only do they have this relationship with God, but also, in a sense, their higher calling is to make it work, (laughs) is to survive, is to have children, is to come back together in the face of awfulness and have that third child, and he's the one who populates the human line. In the biblical account, none of us would be here if it weren't for that third child, Seth. So it reminds us that we all need the ABCs. We need think agency ourselves. We need relationships, and we need something bigger and higher than ourselves. This is Lee Habib, and we've been talking to Bruce Feiler, his terrific book, The First Love Story, Adam, Eve, and Us. Pick it up at Amazon.com. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Sign up for our newsletter. All we need is your email, and we'll send you our five best stories each week in transcript form and in audio form. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.